The Lord be with you. And also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sin. God's mercy endures. Where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south and the transcendent power of love touches earth in the humility of Christ, here and now where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country, we gather for ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered this Lord's Day for our gathered congregation here in Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of ministry, leadership, and service in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
May we pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. One thing I pursue, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Friends, in Lent, as William Sloan Coffin repeatedly, memorably said, we get rid of our guilt, we leave behind what is past, and do so Sunday by Sunday in a prayer of confession. Silently now we lift our thoughts and prayers to God as our choir sings the traditional Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us.
you are a child of the living God whose gospel holds you, the gospel of grace, mercy, freedom, forgiveness, acceptance, embrace, inclusion, pardon, love. You are a child of the living God. If we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
please join me in reading responsibly Psalm 126 with the antiphon. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Geb. Those who sow in tears, we those joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Now please rise as you are able for the singing of the glory patri and the reading of the gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Glory to you, O Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might, might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. 
Please be seated. By an imaginative grace in the mind of a Presbyterian minister, we were invited to spend part of a seminary year in Geneva, Switzerland, underneath the shadow of the great mountains, the Alps of that region. The minister was the Reverend George Todd, a founder two decades earlier of the East Harlem Protestant Parish, a still exemplary incarnation of community engagement against poverty, against racism, against bigotry, against xenophobia, against sexism, against the notion that the poor you have always with you. Apparently, given the rhetoric and revelations of this political season in the United States, we still have much work to do there. Would somebody please shut the windows of heaven that the saints need not hear our current discourse, language lastingly insulting to Mexicans, insulting to Muslims, insulting to women, and by course extension to any others who are other and with the capacity for lasting hurt, especially in the ears of our children, shut the windows of heaven. George and Kathy Todd with others raised a generation of ministers and missioners. Now the subject, their work, of a fine new study and a dissertation just completed here at Boston University by a friend of Marsh Chapel, Ada Fosser. George corralled us and a few others to work for him at the World Council of Churches, whence he had recently gone to provide, as he growled, heat, light, and running water. Jan, you can still overhear, if you listen very carefully, in those months, accompanied by piano, the World Council midweek worship service with Emilio Castro or Philip Potter preaching, to thank back upon George and Kathy Todd's influence, now decades past, is to scale up a great high peak and to look out upon the vast beauty and need of a human race longing in such odd ways for the presence of Christ. As we complete this past decade's reflection at Marsh Chapel in dialogue with Calvin for Lent, George and others like him stand up and stand out as signs of hope for the future. One summer Saturday that year, we left Geneva, John Calvin City, and drove an old car, a deux chevaux, a two-horse, to find our way into the mountains. After a while, we transferred to a train, going higher still, then later from Zermatt to Gornergrat along old railroad lines. And as the sun came to a noonday brilliance, a cable car took us thence to the top of a great high peak snow in July, and the powerful height, the pristine beauty of all creation, just a hint of the power and majesty of John Calvin's view of the Creator. Calvin is best seen and heard from the pinnacle of the Matterhorn. For this theological height, for this reverence for the divine freedom, 
for this austere, awesome vista in his work, we are lastingly thankful, notwithstanding all and many profound disagreements along the railway up and forward. John Calvin's theology has traditionally, perhaps oversimply, but at a first approximation accurately, been summarized by the so-called tulip formula, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. A sober, if not entirely cheery or happy creed. Yet in the New Testament as a whole, the full gospel at a first order of approximation, the opposite is expressed. In the gospel, Jesus loves people. And these people, and we too, we could discern then, must not have been totally depraved. In the gospel, as today, Jesus recognizes the choices that inevitably make us who we are. Choice is relational and conditional and makes us inspect what condition our condition is in on a regular basis. These people, and we too, those whom Jesus loved, must have not been unconditionally elected. In the gospel, Jesus gathers everybody all and addresses all with the invitation as today to sense his presence, to repent, to turn around. These people, and we too, we could discern then, must not have been limited to the very narrow, tiny minority of the predestined elect. In the gospel, Jesus faces heart sick, the brutal truth, the people, that people, and we ourselves can and do resist the invitations of love. They must not, therefore, have been powerless. Jesus' grace was resisted steadily and effectively to the path of the cross. And speaking of the cross, here Jesus himself does not persevere, not at least in Jerusalem or in the spiritual culture of our time, nor does his cause, at least not in this passage. Persecution, not perseverance, awaits this Holy One, and our work of that memory is our work in Lent. No, in this past 10 years, come Lent in dialogue with Calvin, we have pondered and wondered about another tulip form. T, a gospel that's something temporal, a heart for the heart of the city, a longing to heal the spiritual culture of the land. U, something universal, global, and in a religious setting. L, something lastingly loving, loving in mind and spirit and soul. I, something imaginative, a keen sense of imagination, and P, some real power, an openness to power and presence. So here again, the gospel in John 12. The main trouble a preacher faces with regularity is how to understand and so interpret a passage from 2,000 years ago. Every gospel passage, like this one from John 12, is like a hymn or an anthem. There is a soprano line, the lead, the voice, the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. There is an alto line, the most important voice, that just below the surface of the text, the voice of the early church in its preaching of the gospel, its remembering, hearing, and speaking. For the early church, Jesus meant freedom, and his cross and resurrection meant one thing, the preaching of good news 
that we may face the world free from the world. There is the tenor line, what was read from the pulpit, the gospel writer, in this case, John. And there is the baritone, the basso profundo, the way the line reverberates throughout the rest of scripture, down through 1900 years of experience to us today, as John gives way to 1 John, 1 John to Irenaeus, Irenaeus to Calvin, Calvin to Wesley, and Wesley to March 13, 2016. Calvin's reading of John 12, his own interpretation, you will not be surprised, emphasizes the overarching divine freedom and a determinism at work in human affairs, Calvin writes. It is surprising that Christ should have chosen as treasurer a man whom he knew to be a thief. For what was it but giving him a rope to hang himself with? Mortal man's only reply can be that the judgments of God are a profound abyss. There's that lingering determinism. Here is the inheritance of determinism along with the view of scripture addressed two weeks ago here. This is the second lastingly great trouble for us coming out of and staying with us from Calvinism. Calvin. God preordained for his own glory and the display of his attributes of mercy and justice, one part of the human race without any merit of their own to eternal salvation and another part of the human race in just punishment of their sin to eternal damnation. We ought to contemplate providence not as curious and fickle persons are wont to do, but as a ground of confidence and excitement to prayer. Be careful about your theological inheritance. So let us take stock of our gospel today. It includes one of the most infamous lines in scripture, the poor you have always with you. Now, John is making a Christological point here, another sermon for another day. But in much regular memory of the Bible, especially when colored by a certain kind of Calvinism, the verse has not been a way of recognizing the overwhelmingly gracious presence of Christ overshadowing all other concerns, but rather a tragic support to careless disregard for those at the dawn of life, those at the twilight of life, those in the shadow of life, the poor. Be careful about your theological inheritance. So Catherine Tanner in a recent essay, more specifically a religiously inspired psychological sanction for hard work in the pursuit of profit reaches its height, Max Weber thinks, among religious people of a Calvinist stripe who believe in double predestination, that God predestines from all eternity some to salvation and some to damnation, and where the only effective way it's also believed of stilling anxiety about whether one is to be saved or damned is the outwardly disciplined character of one's everyday behavior with regard for material enjoyment. If one is graced by God among the elect, one's actions and ordinary pursuits will be of this character, coolly self-disciplined, restrained, non-hedonistic, 
and in that way amenable to capitalism's requirements. The poor always with us? That is nonsense. On a daily basis, we have as many poor among us as we choose to have poor among us. There is no divine determinism about how many 12-year-olds across this land, let alone those younger, are stripped of layers of human dignity and saddled with the lastingly crippling effects of childhood poverty. The poor we have are the number we choose to have as a society. The number of children and others without full education, effective health care, protective communal services that we have, the number we have today is a direct consequence, not of some preordained, divinely determined formula, but of human choice and human freedom. It is a result of our choices in election and selection. It is a result of our choices in tithing and generosity. It is a result of just how many poor we want to have with us, or how many we can somehow justify having with us. There need not be any. There need not be one. There need not be any. It is a matter of human, not of divine, freedom. As a society, we should be ashamed that so many children are immersed in poverty and violence every day of their lives. Jesus Christ may enter our life at this point, his house is filled with the fragrance of perfume covering him by grace. So utterly gracious is he that you may not notice without at least a homiletical whisper of introduction. To the question of the poor, he, Jesus, makes no philosophical response. To Plato, he leaves the thought that really suffering is illusory or unreal. To Aeschylus, he leaves the proposition that suffering produces wisdom. To, Bo to Boethius, he leaves the idea that suffering is instructive since we need truth more than we need comfort. To Freud, he leaves the deep insight that all life, all creativity springs forth from some birth pangs of suffering. He makes no philosophical response. His response is bodily, personal, and divine. Rather, he prepares for his crucifixion as we do in this season, his burial, as we do during Lent, and his lasting resurrection presence that permeates all, including come Sunday, this day of worship in Lent. Jesus, that is, meets us inside our suffering. He meets us when we ask to withstand even when we cannot understand. And he is with us. Search the scripture. We find Jesus in the long-suffering of our people. In the Old Testament teaching about the utter passion, patience of divine love, Jacob, who worked for seven years for Leah and another seven for Rachel, throughout the Exodus, see Exodus 34, in the heart of the wilderness, Numbers 14, in Psalms of Lament, Psalm 86, in prophetic pain, Jeremiah 
15. Here he comes, prefigured in Job, in Hosea, patient, in Isaiah, waiting, in the Baptist, patient before death, and in Paul, and in Peter, and in John of Patmos. Sometimes when we miss Jesus amid all our activity, we may find him again, or rather be found again by him, entering the poverty and the hurt of his people, standing with the ill, ministering with the aging, incarnate to the lonely, showering himself on the pains of this life, present as the charismatic fullness of real life. Jesus Christ empowers us to withstand suffering even when, honestly, we have no way to understand it. Here he is, publicly portrayed for you as crucified, unlike any merely religious representation of God. Jesus, who come Lent, invades the depth, the troubled dark night of the soul to claim that darkness and that to show that darkness is as light for him. One day, in the fullness of time, compassion will reign. One day there will emerge a people fully filled with a passion for compassion. One day, as the Old Testament says, in the heart of difficulty with Job, we will sing songs in the night, and they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. One day, as the New Testament says, the long-suffering grace of God will prevail and suffering will produce endurance and endurance patience and patience hope and hope shall not disappoint us because of the love of God made manifest in Jesus Christ. And one day, and why not start here, and why not start now? There will emerge a real community setting, a patient, passionate, compassionate beat, a cadence of quiet endurance. One day in the fullness of time, his presence will, re will reign. May this be our prayer. O day of God, draw nigh in beauty and in power. Come with thy timeless judgment now to match our present hour. Bring to our troubled minds, uncertain and afraid, the quiet of a steadfast faith, calm of a call obeyed. As we enter in this time of prayer, I invite you to remain seated or to stand or to come to the altar and pray, however you feel most comfortable. Let us now join in the call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord.
This morning's prayer is a responsive prayer. When you hear, Lord, in our mercy, I invite you to respond, hear our prayer. Almighty God, we come to you humbly this morning, lifting our hearts and concerns to you. We ask you this day, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We lift up your children in need of healing. Those whose hearts, bodies, minds, or relationships are in need of your divine trust and touch. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We lift up your beloved in need of freedom. Those who are oppressed by poverty, hunger, injustice, or fear. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We lift up ourselves, who so often are the oppressors. We lift up all those who, like us, so often fail to love our neighbors as you have called us to. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We lift up our leaders. May they have wisdom and guidance to lead us effectively. For those who lead our churches, our children in schools, and our government officials, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we lift up to you now in this moment of silence any and all of the burdens on our hearts here in this space. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Now let us pray together as you have taught us to. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Good morning. It's a delight to be worshiping with you and community with you this morning. And we welcome you again, whether you're seated here in the pews or joining us virtually or on the radio. If you're with us in person this morning, we'd love to get to know your name and help you to get to know your neighbor's name. And one way to do that is to fill out the red pads that are found in the center of each aisle and to pass those along. It's a great way to surreptitiously learn the name of the person sitting next to you. If you're joining us online, you're always welcome to check in with us and let us know you're listening by emailing us at chapel at bu.edu. We have several announcements this morning. Um, first of all, uh, this Friday, there'll be an interfaith Shabbat service hosted by Hillel. Um, all are welcome. There's the service starting at 6.30 p.m., dinner at 7, and a discussion at 8.30. Um, we invite you to go to bu.edu slash Hillel if you want to register. This might be a great opportunity, especially for those in the adult study group on Sunday mornings. Um, tomorrow, Monday at 7.30 p.m., Ms. Jessica Chica will be hosting our regular religion on tap. So if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, some community, and conversation, please join her at the BU Pub at 7.30 p.m. Um, two announcements from hospitality. Uh, first of all, if you want to dedicate a lily for Easter, there's these forms in your bulletin. They're due next Sunday, so please do get to those. If you have a chance, they go to uh, Ms. Katie No in the, in the office downstairs. And uh, just as importantly, we still need some food for our Easter breakfast, which is a really big event here every year. Um, we're, we have plenty for in terms of indulgent items, but we're still in need of people to sign up to bring fruit. So if you're willing to bring some, some healthier things, uh, please go and sign up. Katie can help direct you in that area. Um, and last but not least, we will not have children's ministry this morning as it is the end of uh, BU's spring break still. Now as the ushers wait upon us for our tithes and offerings, I remind you that it is a gift and a discipline to be a giver. So I invite you to meditate as you give um, on the choir's offering to us, Pablo Casals, O Vos Omnes.
Almighty God, we long to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and a shareholding of his sufferings. Bless these gifts, which represent our commitment that all gains are a loss before the better value of knowing you. May these gifts serve in the partnership of the gospel here and around the world. Amen. Lord, support us all the day long of this troublous life until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes. The busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in thy mercy grant us, we pray, a safe rest, a happy lodging, and peace at the last through Christ our Lord. Amen. 